We come together on Sundays and we worship together and we read God's word and we hear a sermon preached and then we might go to our youth groups or our women's or men's Bible studies and do the same. And the interesting thing is, is that some of you only know me from church. And I know some of you only from church. We've never spent time together outside of church. But if you think about it, we do have lives outside of church, right? Our Monday to Saturday lives. And in a room like this, we may not talk about this in church, but there's a lot of talent here. There's people that work in all sorts of different vocations and careers and have knowledge and things, complexities in their lives that they have to deal with during their Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday week. We have different marital circumstances represented here. There are single people. There are widows and widowers. There are married people. There are engaged people. Some of you have children. Some of you don't have children. Some of you have grandchildren or great-grandchildren. We all have a stewardship. And our lives are all different. My life is not the same as yours. And your life is not the same as mine. We all love Christ, hopefully. And we worship him. But our lives have many, many complexities to it. And I would call this our stewardship. So each of us has a stewardship. And my stewardship doesn't necessarily look like yours, but each of you has one. Each of you has a set of responsibilities. Each of you has a career or perhaps you're a student, you're pursuing further, further education. Each of you has certain things you need to accomplish uh, in a given week. And as we were listening to the testimonies given this morning, I was reminded again of that, that Every one of us comes from a different background. We have a different path that we have, have walked. And these lives that we live uh, force us to constantly make decisions. We have to make decisions at work. Maybe the decisions you make at work are different than the decisions I have to make at work. Depending on your marital status, you're going to have different complexities in your life than I might. Depending on the age or stage of your children, or the absence of children, you're going to have your own unique uh, complexities, but no matter how skilled you might be, or no matter how smart you might be, at some point we we fail to make good decisions. We we make poor decisions, and this is why it's important for us as Christians to to be humble and to regularly go to God and ask Him for divine wisdom. And the wisdom that you need to live your life is probably going to be a little different than the wisdom I need to live my life. Because again, we have different circumstances represented here today. But when God has put you on a path in relationships, in a particular career, at a particular point in history, in a particular school or academy, you need the Lord's divine wisdom to guide you. If you want to get life right in all of its complexity and all of its diversity, you need the wisdom of God. Now, as a church... We have been studying for the past few weeks the book of First Kings, which is in the Old Testament of the Christian Bible. And specifically, we've been looking at chapters 1 through 11, or at least we intend to. We're studying the life of King Solomon. And King Solomon is a man that has many strengths and many weaknesses, which I appreciate. Because he's not given to us in scriptures, this guy that has it all together. He has many strengths and he has many weaknesses. And from his life, we're trying to understand what it means to benefit from and enjoy God's divine grace in spite of our own uh, human failures. We've already studied chapter 1. We jumped ahead. We studied chapter 11. So we know the beginning of his life and the end of his life. Last Sunday, we looked at the first part of chapter 2. And today, I want to look at the second half of chapter 2 
very briefly, and then I want to focus most of our attention in on what we read in 1 Kings chapter 3. So if you're just joining us, last week when we were studying King Solomon's life, we heard that his father had come to him as he began his new stewardship as the king of Israel. And his father gave him three basic truths he wanted him to live by. His father said to him that I want you to be a man that holds fast to the word of God. He called him the statutes, the testimonies, the rules of God. He said to his son, I want, I want to make sure that you love God, not just with your mind, but also with your heart. Didn't want him just to get his rational relationship with God right. He wanted him to have a passionate relationship with God. And as king, in his stewardship, he had the responsibility to exercise justice over the nation. Now, most of us here aren't judges. I assume there's probably nobody here that's a judge. Or certainly there are no kings in the room, although you might want to be one. There's no queens in the room. So it's probably not our responsibility as individuals to exercise justice, to adjudicate over matters in the civil sphere. Your world is different than Solomon's world. But nevertheless, that was Solomon's stewardship to be a king over God's people. And as part of his tasks and responsibilities, he had to engage in the difficult work of judging his people and wielding the sword, penalizing evildoers and rewarding the righteous. And so at the beginning of his ministry as king, again, that was his stewardship. Yours is different, but that was his stewardship. His father outlines for him several outstanding crimes that had been committed against the throne that Solomon needed to deal with. And so Solomon, as the theocratic king, had to do the hard work, and I know this makes us uncomfortable, of putting to death some people who had violated God's laws, sought to usurp authority, had cursed the crown. Uh, He had to, to judge them, but he also had the opportunity to exercise mercy. And there are four accounts given to us in the second half of 1 Kings chapter Uh, Two, let me just summarize them for you. So in verses 13 through 25, we again meet Solomon's older brother, a man by the name of Adonijah. And Adonijah, at some point in the past, had tried to take the crown from his father without his father's permission. His father had appointed Solomon as his heir, and Adonijah much like his brother Absalom before him, had tried to usurp authority and take the crown uh, in his own manipulative way. Solomon had permitted him to live, but under the condition that he behave himself, which is mercy. While a little bit of time goes by and Adonijah, still wanting to be king, comes up with a scheme. And he goes to King Solomon's mother and he says, Hey, could you ask Solomon if he would mind if I married a woman by the name of Abishag? Now, Abishag just happened to be that young nurse that happened to be part of King David's harem. And in ancient times, unlike ours, for for Adonijah to make that kind of a request was a way of saying, well, I, I want to marry this woman so I can demonstrate to the world around me that I am actually the legitimate king because one of my wives 
is, was actually one of my father's wives or specifically concubine to be more accurate. And so this wasn't just young man loves young girl and wants to get married. This was a deliberate scheme to try to usurp authority once again. And Solomon sees right through it and realizes this guy is a danger to the kingdom. He's not repentant. He's still up to his old ways. And so this is what Solomon says. God do so to me and more also if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David, my father, and who has made me a house, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. And so Adonijah is publicly executed for trying to usurp the the throne. Now, there's a second man by the name of Abathar. Abathar had been a priest and he had also conspired with Adonijah and Joab to try to get the throne for Adonijah. And yet Solomon does not continue to see any ongoing belligerence or rebellion in him. And so he exercises mercy. He says to Abathar, go to Anioth, to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David, my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So this is also part of justice. Sometimes the just judge must penalize the evildoer who is unrepentant and continues in sin. And God does that, by the way. He penalizes the evildoer who continues in sin. But the just king also is willing to exercise mercy. And so we see in Solomon's judgment, the character of God, because this is how God exercises justice as well. He is not afraid to punish and penalize sin. If you continue to live in rebellion against God, he will punish you. But at the same time, God is merciful and he is willing to exercise mercy to those that cease and desist from sin. The third man that comes up in the text is General Joab. And Joab had served under David, but he had also supported Adonijah's attempt to usurp the throne. And in addition to that, while he wasn't continuing to participate in those those treasonous acts, he had executed innocent people in times of peace. So he had blood on his hands. And Genesis chapter nine, verse six says, whoever sheds the blood of a man by man shall his blood be shed. And so the king finds out that Joab has run to the temple and is trying to basically excuse himself from his crime. And the king replied to him, do as he has said, strike him down and bury him. And thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. So what does the just king understand? If he allows this crime to go unpunished, he's as guilty as Joab is. So he exercises justice and this fellow is put to death. And then the fourth individual is more like Abathar. So he's given mercy. So we have two cases where there's immediate death penalty meted out. And there's two cases where mercy is offered. Abathar behaves himself. But there's a fourth character by the name of Shammai. Shammai had cursed the royal title. He had cursed the throne under David. And yet he was offered mercy by Solomon. There was an agreement that was made that basically said this. Okay, we don't trust you. But if you stay in your home and don't cause any more problems, we're going to exercise mercy. You won't be put to death. Solomon did not want this guy out conspiring, building his own little posse, 
certainly wouldn't have wanted him going to some of Israel's arch enemies and conspiring with them. He was given mercy, but there was qualifications to it. He needed to continue to live in repentance, essentially. Well, he, he forgets about it. And one of his slaves runs off, so he decides to run off to Philistine territory, which was one of the sworn enemies of Israel, and then comes back. And Solomon hears about it and says, look, you're going to be put to death because, frankly, I don't trust you. You've cursed the, you've cursed the crown, and now you've hung out in enemy territory, and who knows what you're up to. So in this second half of the chapter, again, it might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, but we have the just theocratic king exercising justice over the people of God in the same way that God exercises justice over the people of God. He identifies sin. He's long-suffering with sin. But if a person continues in sin, they die in their sin. If a person repents of their sin, there's opportunities for mercy and a second chance. But don't take that for granted. Because if you don't continue in your repentance, God will mete out justice to you as well. So here we have the justice of the king who ruled over God's people. He was willing to protect his kingdom from usurpers and violent men. Practically speaking, had he not done that, he would have also been usurped and put to death. So this man is not a perfect man, but this is an example of Solomon balancing justice and mercy. And then we find ourselves in chapter three. And let's focus in on verses 1 through 15 because they form sort of a sandwich. There's a message at the beginning, there's a message at the end, and then there's a whole lot of meat in the middle. So Solomon, at the beginning of this passage, we he, he has identified for us some weaknesses. Unfortunately, Solomon made some errors. We've already read chapter 11, and we know that one of his fatal flaws was polytheism, pretty significant sin. He had married multiple foreign wives from all different religious persuasions. They had influenced his worship life. And at the end of his life, we find him worshiping all sorts of foreign gods. But this didn't just start at the end of his life. At the beginning of his reign, he started to dabble in this sin as well. Instead of trusting God to protect his people, Solomon made an inappropriate alliance with a foreign king who worshipped a different god. Fortunately, he becomes aware of that foolish decision, at least in this text, and asks God for wisdom. So look what it says in verses 1 and 2. Solomon made a marriage alliance. That's not unlike the word yoked, to be unequally yoked. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, in the modern world, if you want to form an alliance with another nation, you generally sign some sort of a treaty or document. You don't send your wives back and forth to intermarry. But in ancient times, this is what they would do, because this would reduce the risk of a foreign king invading you if he knew his daughter was living in your, your castle or your temple or your royal city. So he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. So we have someone who is part of a people group that worships the sun, that worships pagan deities, part of a people group that had incarcerated the Jews for 400 years. He makes a foolish alliance with this king for political reasons. 
And he takes her back to the place where God's presence had manifested itself in the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. And then not only do we see this error in Solomon's life, but we gain a little bit of insight into what his culture was like. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Now a high place, we're not talking about the weed shop, but a high place was an elevated platform upon which pagan deities were worshipped all across the land of Israel at different points in time. So the people of God, as Solomon was making an alliance with the pagan king, were told the people of God were heavily involved in polytheism, worshipping foreign gods. And these verses foreshadow for us what will be the ultimate downfall, as I've already mentioned, of Solomon. But for now, the way they serve in the text is to illustrate the need for divine grace in the midst of human failure. So back to my preliminary comments. We all have a stewardship. We all have responsibilities. Yours is different than mine. Mine's different than yours. We live in different worlds in a certain sense. But we all have blind spots. There's things we don't always see, or there might be rebellion or ongoing sin in our lives that can take us down. And Solomon's was a desire for peace and security by making alliances with foreign kings and a desire to expand his harem and fill it up with women that worship different gods. So the word alliance here is connected to a king that didn't love God fully in the way that he should. As a theocratic king, Solomon was to represent one God and the will and wishes of the one monotheistic God of Israel. And yoking himself to a pagan ruler was always a bad idea. And to boot, the people around him are worshiping false gods. We have a king that's starting to slip away and we have God's chosen people that are starting to slip away. So it's pretty obvious that we have a man here with failures and flaws seeking to govern a people with failures and flaws. And that's not unlike your life and mine. I am a man with failures and flaws, and yet I have a stewardship in my marriage and in my church. I have responsibilities, but we're all, if you're anything like me, you're very much aware of your own weaknesses and your propensity toward failing God. I don't care how long you've walked with Christ. I was baptized in that very baptistry 39 years ago. You think, well, after 39 years, the guy must have his act together. No, I still have failures and flaws and weaknesses in my own life. I'm not going to rattle them off to you today. You can see me in the foyer afterwards. I'll give you a long list. And I know you have failures and flaws as well. And then we, we have a stewardship. If you're married, it's your marriage. If you're an employer, your employees. If you're a parent, your children. If you're a youth leader, the youth group. If you're a pastor in a church, your church. You have a stewardship. You have flaws and your stewardship has flaws. It's like, well, how's this going to work out? If I have flaws and my stewardship has flaws, like how in the world can Harvest Bible Church possibly ever be a God-honoring church when the pastor has issues and you all have issues? Well, 
We can try to think our way out of it. We can try to plan our way out of it. Or we can pray that God would give us divine wisdom and divine strength. And this is fortunately what Solomon does. So the big message here of the text is this, that without wisdom from God, we fail. But with wisdom from God, we can succeed. So if you want to shore up your marriage, your business, your finances, whatever your stewardship is, you need to ask God for divine wisdom. So here we have in verse three, almost like the portrayal of a guy that's having a bit of an internal wrestling match in terms of his affections. On one hand, he loved God. On the other hand, he was failing God. Look what it says in verse three. Solomon loved the Lord. Maybe you can relate. You love God. You're walking in the statutes of David. You, you, you're obeying God's law on one hand. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So again, in case we missed it in the narrative, now the writer just brings it right out for us. So we understand we're interpreting the text properly. What was Solomon's problem? It's not that he didn't love God. It's not that he didn't have some knowledge and affection for God's laws, but he, he had sort of a split personality. He, he loved God on one hand, but his actions did not always align with it. David had commended to him the need to walk in the statutes of God. He had warned him against worshiping false gods, false deities. I guess Solomon obeyed some of it, but not all of it. And here we have an example of a man who has both pluses in his life and minuses in his life, much like yours truly and each one of us. It's not so unlike the country that we live in either. We are a country that has forsaken the true and living God, and we've become syncretists. You can pretty much worship anything, anyone, anywhere, anyhow, and you're applauded for it. Except if you're an exclusivist and you worship the true and living God, then you're a weirdo. Then you're a problem. Then you're hateful. So we, we live in a, a country as well where there is much compromise. And don't kid yourself, that compromise affects us. Even if you try to not let it affect you, it affects you. Subtly and not so subtly, we are affected by the syncretism and the polytheism of our world. But nevertheless, you are responsible for your stewardship. You're responsible to make it right. You're responsible to repent when God reveals himself to us. Here's an example of uh, Solomon's failures. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. So he makes a trip to engage in the sin of polytheistic worship. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. These weren't offerings to a true and living God. These were offerings to false gods. So he was like, on one hand, all in. But listen to the grace of God and the mercy of God. Sometimes God slaps us upside the head and it's very sharp. It's a very sharp and shocking slap. But other times he comes to us a little more gently. And here God comes to Solomon gently, even, even though he was in great sin. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. So without even out, out front identifying the sin, formally identifying the sin and chastising Solomon, God 
provides Solomon with an opportunity. He's like, why don't, why don't you ask me for what it is you want? And we have mercy here. We have a second chance in the middle of a failure. So this is where Solomon really starts to shine. And God blesses him for it. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. By the way, that's all like a summary of the application of last week's sermon. He walked in the statutes of God. He walked in righteousness. And he didn't just do it with his mind. He also did it with his heart. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. I think we should appreciate the fact that Solomon here isn't thanking God for his own royal title, but he's thanking God for being faithful to his father for putting him on the throne, which proves God's faithfulness and steadfast love. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king. And I love the fact that before he says king, he says servant. So let me just throw this out to you. Every position of authority that God grants to us generally comes with a title. You're the prime minister, you're a king, you're the boss, you're the dad, you're the parent, you're the employer, you're the manager, you're the supervisor. But every position of authority that God gives to the Christian is first and foremost a position of service. Solomon here had a position of authority, but before mentioning his kingship, he mentions the fact that he, he understood that his kingship, his royal title, was a position of service. I think that's a good reminder to us because sometimes we might fixate on the position, the authority we've been given. I've been given authority. You got to listen to me. Well, do we first and foremost understand that's a position of service? You have made your servant king, the servant king in place of David, my father. And then if this isn't humility, I don't know what else is because most men would not feel comfortable referring to themselves this way. Although I am but a little child. <laughs> that, that, that's humility right there. That's demonstrating some of Solomon's character. He refers to himself in a self-deprecating way. He puts himself well beneath God. And he's essentially acknowledging that he is not worthy of the office, which he isn't. And nor am I and nor are you worthy of the offices that God has given to you. I do not know how to go out or come in. In other words, to be honest with you, God, I know I'm the king, but I have no idea what I'm doing. That's not a bad thing. Maybe you're a newly minted husband and your wife's not super keen on your husbandly capabilities. Well, you can defend yourself and you can pull rank and all that sort of stuff where you can say, you know what, to be honest with you, I have no idea what I'm doing. But then instead of staying in a position of ignorance, you pray that the Lord, you say, I'm going to commit to praying that God would give me the wisdom to try to figure this out. That's humility. And that actually builds trust. Again, all of you have a different stewardship. 
I've been doing this for a long time. But there are many times I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. This is a new one. You have to pray for divine wisdom from God. And he will grant that. But it starts with humility. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. It seems to me that Solomon is demonstrating a a bit of an overwhelmed spirit there. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. Who is able to govern this, your great people? Well, here, brothers and sisters, we learn the essence of wisdom. I remember reading this text when I was very young and being fascinated by it. Because most of us, let's use the genie in the bottle illustration. If you were given a bottle that you could rub and a genie popped out and said, I'm going to give you three wishes. I know what you'd ask for. It probably wouldn't be wisdom. You'd be like a bigger house, a long life, millions of dollars. That's what most people would ask for, something in that realm, something tangible, something that will make their life more pleasurable. Solomon is essentially given his one wish, if you want to call it that, and he prays for wisdom. Now, what is wisdom and why is it so critical that we pray for wisdom? Well, the first thing wisdom is, is wisdom begins with an acknowledgement of the wisdom and faithfulness of God, that God has something we don't and that we need. God has something we don't and that we need. Listen to the language of Solomon's, contained within Solomon's prayer. He says, you have shown, you have kept, you have made. Time and time again, Solomon humbly attributes everything that he has and everything that his dad has and the people that are actually before him to God. You might think a wise person, if you want to be really wise, you got to present yourself as having it all together. No, 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 no. A wise person is a person that realizes that in and of yourself, you will flunk. But God is in charge. God is keeping us. God is guiding us. He's showing us. God has made us. And so wisdom starts with humility, essentially realizing that you are creature. He is creator. There's so many people that arrogantly walk through life. I don't need God. God owes me this. God owes me that. He didn't come through. So I'm just going to be my own man. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to blaze my own trail. They don't realize how small and feeble-minded they are. So wisdom begins with an acknowledgement of the wisdom and faithfulness of God. Secondly, Wisdom is about, this, is about stewardship. So it's, it's about wisdom to steward God's belongings. It's about acknowledging that your life is a stewardship. How many times, and I repeat myself deliberately, not because I have a stuttering problem, but because I want to drive this point home. How many times have we reminded ourselves in, the, in this church that ownership is the enemy of stewardship? I want you to remember that. Ownership is the enemy of stewardship. As soon as you think you own your marriage, you will fail. As soon as you think you own your house, you'll fail. As soon as you think you own your ministry, you will fail. We are just stewards. We own nothing. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Our lives are a stewardship. And he 
is ultimately the owner of everything we have. So what this does is this puts us in the position of servant. He says, your servant is in the midst of your people. Not only does he acknowledge that his life is under God and a stewardship from God, but his ministry, if you will, is a stewardship from God. This changes things. This changes things. When you understand that your marriage, your job, your ministry, your everything is a stewardship, it changes things. You suddenly act more responsibly because you know you must give a response one day to the one who will hold you accountable. Wisdom is also, the prayer for wisdom also involves uh, a request for understanding. So he, he requests understanding from God. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. And this is not the kind of understanding you can learn in a Bachelor's of Arts program at the University of Windsor. This is not the kind of wisdom that you can learn in a PhD program. So look at the world around us. We have people all across our country, all across the world actually, running big corporations, governing countries, sitting on the bench, adjudicating over court cases that have endless certifications and degrees. But I hate to say this, are as dumb as a bag of hammers. When it comes to their ability to think through issues and make proper decisions, it's, it's actually embarrassing sometimes. When you look at some of the rhetoric that comes out of the mouths of people in high office, people in positions of responsibility, they might have a lot of knowledge packed away in their minds, but they do not have wisdom from God. They don't seem to be able to connect the dots. They do not have a moral foundation. They're not ultimately accountable to God. So how is it possible that after thousands of years of human civilization, with more access to education than we've ever had in human history, that we still have multiple examples around the globe of people ruining nations, ruining their marriages, ruining their communities. Like, if evolution is true, not just biological evolution, but the furtherance of the human mind and intellect, why is it that we seem dumber than ever before? Like, why is it that we live in a culture where somehow, somehow people in high office are absolutely convinced that there is no difference between men and women? Like, how did we get here? We've had thousands of years to observe the behavior and biology of literally millions of people. And you'll have people with master's degrees and doctorates stand up and say, gender isn't real. You can, pick your own, you can pick your own gender or identity. How is it possible that after thousands of years of human civilization, that we're still bankrupting country after country after country because we can't even figure out basic collective economics? How is that possible? I'm telling you why. Because without the wisdom of God, you will fail. And so we need to ask for God in our own stewardship for wisdom to understand. We need God to turn on the lights in our minds. We're not talking about increasing your IQ. We're talking about seeing things from God's perspective. The Bible actually says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, reverence for God is the beginning of wisdom. 
So this, this explains why we see it in the word of God. We see it demonstrated in human society. This is why the further people drift from God and try to figure out things by themselves without consulting God and his word, the worse life gets. And when someone suddenly wakes up and asks God for wisdom, suddenly, wow, surprise, surprise, the marriage is more stable. Surprise, surprise, the, the economy is more stable. Surprise, surprise, people are behaving better. Surprise, surprise. Well, not really, because true wisdom comes from God. Now, wisdom, of course, in large part involves the ability to differentiate between good and evil. It's a moral thing. It's not just a rational thing. It's a moral thing. Solomon says that I may discern between good and evil. So perhaps some of you were blessed to grow up in a home where your mother or father had a tender conscience and instilled a tender conscience in you. They were quickly grieved by evil and quickly delighted in good and holiness. And that sort of rubbed off on you. And so your, your moral conscience is sort of turned up a little bit. But perhaps others of you grew up in the home where your parents were licentious parents. They just kind of let you do whatever you want. You weren't really given any rules. And you've had to learn to develop a moral conscience. You've had to pray for it. And of course, through the reading of God's word and the work of God's Holy Spirit, the spirit of God can awaken us to sin that we previously didn't maybe even think was sinful and help us to appreciate the things of God and have a heart like God's for our fellow man or for the moral standards of God. Well, this is really, really important. Wisdom is fundamentally the ability to differentiate between good and evil. And the more you spend time with God and ask God for wisdom and study his word, the more you will be able to spot the lies around you. So one of the things I like to do when I watch a show or a movie, maybe this is, sounds kind of weird to some of you. I'm, not, I'm never just watching it for entertainment purposes. I'm always looking for the lie, the philosophy, the worldview. What is it that I'm actually seeing here in that relationship? Is it a virtue or is it a lie that I'm, that I'm, I'm witnessing? What is, what is it that they're communicating to me by how the storyline is written? Now, if you don't develop the ability to analyze what you're taking in, television shows or music, lies will continue to pour into your mind. And in some respects, you can't avoid it. If you're living in the world, you're going to be exposed to, to good and evil. But this is another reason why we need to learn to pray for wisdom so that we can differentiate between good and evil. So we can sort of turn up the dial of our conscience and right away, so that's a lie. I know that's a lie. I may not even be able to label it right away. I need to think about it a little bit more, but I know there's untruth being communicated to me in the moment. Well, Solomon was in a polytheistic, pantheistic, syncretistic culture, just like we are. There were all sorts of gods, options to worship. And he understood that if he was going to be wise, he needed to be able to differentiate between good and evil. And then finally, he wants the wisdom to lead. He wants the wisdom to exercise his stewardship well, you could say. For who is able to govern your great people? That's a good question. Who in the world, who in the world can possibly manage a Christian marriage without the wisdom of God? The answer to that is nobody. Who in the world can possibly raise children successfully in a world like ours without the wisdom of God? Nobody. 
Who in the world can possibly pastor a church in a world like ours without God's wisdom? Nobody. Who in the world can possibly be successful in business in a world like ours, which is filled with compromise without the wisdom of God? Nobody. If you don't seek and consult God for wisdom to lead in your sphere, you will fail. Solomon realized at this moment how weak and frail he was. He's like, I feel like a little boy here. I don't even know what I'm doing. So he asks God for wisdom, and so should you, and so should I. He embraces his task. He doesn't run from his stewardship. He doesn't do the let go and let God thing. He leans in, but he asks God to make him wise. And he knows in all of this who the people ultimately belong to. The tyrant is the leader that thinks his stewardship belongs to him. In government, in church life, in corporate life, the abused employee is abused because his employer thinks he owns him or her. The tyrannical pastor is is cut from the same cloth. The tyrannical prime minister is cut from the same cloth. As soon as you forget that your stewardship actually belongs to God and God's going to hold you accountable for that, you will descend into tyranny and abuse 100% of the time. So keeping in mind that if God has called us to govern, and in some respects we're all called to govern something or someone, that we need to remind ourselves that it is ultimately God's stewardship. Well, God is pleased when we ask for wisdom. Have you asked God to make you wise? Literally, have you asked God to make you wise? Have you ever prayed the Solomonic prayer for wisdom? If you haven't, maybe a light's being turned on in your mind right now, and you're like, aha, eureka moment. This is why I'm failing. I've never actually prayed to God for wisdom. I get my wisdom from Wikipedia or YouTube or Rumble or whatever. Have you consulted God for wisdom? Well, the Bible says it pleased the Lord that Solomon had had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you, notice it's from God. I steward to you. I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you've not asked. So God gives them some bonuses, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Wasn't that interesting? God not only gives them what he asked for, but he gives them what he didn't ask for that most people would ask for. (laughs) And God has given you some of that as well. Uh, We're not guaranteed health, wealth, and prosperity, but God has given each one of us some of that. You're here. You have health, wealth, and a measure of prosperity. So God has given you that as well. But there is an if clause, a conditional clause that God throws in. He's also prepared to remove wisdom if Solomon fails to obey. And if you will walk in his ways, notice if, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So he begins by worshiping false gods. Remember that? The intro, the top of the sandwich. Then we have this wonderful prayer for wisdom. And the the bottom of the sandwich, his worship is now different. Isn't that interesting? When you grow in wisdom, your worship changes. Your worship is righted. Your worship is realigned. 
He, he begins by worshiping false gods. God gives him wisdom. And now he worships God, God's way in God's place. And Solomon awoke and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem. He's no longer at Gibeon worshiping in some front of some ridiculous high place. He's in Jerusalem and he stands before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, not to pagan gods, and made a feast for all his servants. That's important for us to understand that when your worship life is aligned with God, when you're worshiping God, that's an indication that you now have wisdom. You get it. You understand what it's all about. You have your priorities in line. And when you're worshiping false gods and fake gods, longing after the things of this world, that's an indication. I need to pray for some wisdom here because I'm, I'm, I'm losing my way here. So worship and worship or, or worship and wisdom are inextricably linked. So you'll, you'll know that you have wisdom when your worship life has been corrected. The unwise worship falsehoods. The wise worship the God of wisdom. And this is why, bringing it all back around, the Bible tells us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. In other words, when you lack wisdom, you're not worshiping God anymore. The fool, which is the opposite of wisdom, claims that there is no God, but the, the wise fear and revere him. A wise man or wise woman always fears and reveres God. So brothers and sisters, again, you all have unique challenges. You all have unique stewardships. You all have unique, unique circumstances. There's things in your life that I will no, never understand. There's things in my life that you will never understand. There are people next to you. They may help you. They may pray for you. They may give you some wise counsel at times. But each of us has limits. I can't live your life for you. And you can't live mine. You can go to counseling and get some limited benefit. You can listen to endless sermons and grow in your knowledge of God's word and benefit from that. But unless you pray to God for wisdom, true wisdom will always elude you. And so let us be a people, if we want to get life right, that pray to God regularly for wisdom. Let's ask God to do that which we cannot provide one another, that which does not innately grow up within ourselves, but comes to us from beyond. And let's humbly serve the Lord, asking him to guide us through all of life so that we can live life well under his lordship. 